Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluated UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to dearest product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. You can find out a little bit more about that at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Regine Gilbert. Regine is an industry assistant professor at New York University's Tandon School of Engineering, where she is teaching the next generation of UX designers about the importance of accessibility and inclusive design in both regular reality and cross-reality experiences. Before joining NYU, Regine was the chief creative officer of Gilbert Consulting Group, where she advised organizations large and small on accessibility. She has also worked as a user experience lead at Ralph Lauren and prior to entering UX was a senior product manager at Michael Kors. Regine gives her skills and energy to a range of UX and accessibility initiatives, including as a member of the Ad Council's UX committee, as a researcher for Virtual Experience Interaction Lab, as a steering committee member for Teach Access, as the chair of the Internet Accessibility Rally, and as an advisory board member for the W3C. She is the author of the book Inclusive Design for a Digital World, Designing with Accessibility in Mind, an excellent starting point for anybody new to accessibility. Rumour has it that Regine is also working on a new book called Human Spatial Computing, which will be published by Oxford University Press in 2023. A sought-after speaker, Regine has graced the stage at events such as Design at Scale, Stanford's HCI Lecture Series, South by Southwest, Design Matters, The State of Black Design, and Ethics in Design. And now, she's gracing this virtual studio for a conversation with me on Brave UX today. Regine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here, Regine. And I discovered something about you that I thought was somewhat unique, actually. I don't think I've ever come across uh, this before in any of my previous guests. And that's you used to be a fashion designer and you found your way to UX through other areas of IT, but your starting point was fashion. And you once wrote a post where you were sharing your observations of the parallels that exists between fashion design and UX. What were those parallels that you saw? So uh, let me first start by saying I was a technical fashion designer. Uh, technical fashion designer focuses on the fit of a garment. And one of the things that I saw, I noticed in, I think the title of the Medium post was Approaching UX with a Fashion Designer's Eye. And it was the fact that when you when you do fashion design, you have some sort of inspiration, right? You'll do some sketches, you will go and make something in what they call muslin, which is like a a beige looking fabric, (laughs) you know, so you'll you'll make a, in essence, a mock up. And the same for UX design, right? You you go, you get inspired, you look at other websites, you look at other apps, and then you'll sketch some ideas, right? And then you'll mock something up 
and you'll make it low fidelity in the same low fidelity in fashion would be making something in muslin before you actually make it in the real fabric. So there were a lot of parallels that I saw between the fashion world and the UX design world. And you spent from what I gather, two or three years in that technical fashion designer role. What was it that motivated you to mix up things, change up your career and leave fashion behind? I didn't like my boss. I mean, that was, (laughs) that's the truth. I didn't like my boss and I, I had talked to a person who was working in the IT department who said, I know you don't like it, but don't leave the company. We have an opening in the IT department for an IT trainer. You should come because you know the system very well. And I said, I don't know. IT trainer, like I'm going to go from a fashion designer to an IT trainer. What is that? But I did. I interviewed and I got the job. And so I stayed within my same company, but that got me into the technology side of things. I've heard you talk about this. So you spent about eight years or so in non-UX focused technology roles before you made your way to UX. You said, and I'll just quote you now, you said, I got bored and started taking UX classes. So what was it about those other roles, you know, the role as an IT trainer, the role in product management? What was it about these types of roles that didn't quite captivate you like it seems user experience has? I think for me, I love the constant learning, right? And I think with UX design, the learning that you get is like you never know who you're, what your users are thinking. When I worked in IT, I worked in internal systems. I was a, a very heavily into systems, into the supply chain side of fashion. I worked in fashion for a very long time. And that was, to me, it is interesting. I Don't get me wrong. Supply chain is fascinating. It's a whole, it's a whole new world. <laughs> and, but for me, I really desired to be working on the uh, the other side of digital, not that internal side, but what, what are customers seeing, right? Not what the internal teams are seeing. And your time in those other roles, so you mentioned you spent time in the, you know, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth here, but more so the back office, the, the systems that drive things like supply chain, you know, serving the internal customers within the business as opposed to the, the end user. How did working in those other roles, if you reflect back on your journey through those roles, how did it help you, if at all, in your work in UX? How has that helped to shape your practice and the way in which you teach? Well, I was a UX designer without being a UX designer. That's what I learned. Uh, a lot of the stuff I did as a business analyst, um, going to talk, you know, talk to stakeholders, getting an understanding of the business process, doing a mock-up in Excel. Okay, that's what I was doing. <laughs> I wasn't using any systems. And then the first time that I did learn uh UX, I, I learned Axure, which not a lot of people use these days, although it's an awesome product um, because people, you know, hopped on the Figma train and sketch train and all of that. But um, what I would say is it provided me with the foundation of getting to understand business, understanding the customer, right? Understanding who your user is in order to facilitate because what I a lot of the stuff I worked on was building out of new systems, and incorporating business process into that. So 
I would say it gave me a great foundation for UX because when I got into UX, I thought, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a junior UX designer. And then as I talked to people, they said, you're certainly not a junior, right? Because I had had experience, but that experience, I think it, it comes down to the lingo, right? And saying the right words, the buzzwords. I didn't necessarily have those buzzwords, but I did have the understanding of how the business worked. It definitely sounds like substance over over style maybe served you quite well there. Yeah, it worked out. Mm. Mm. I want to come to something slightly different now, but in the vein of, of both substance and style, which is presentation and the delivery of talks. And something that I learned about you is, as I watched some of your previous talks, is that you have purposefully or at least appears to have purposefully adopted an approach to the way in which you give your conference talks that actually runs counter to some of the popular advice out there. And I believe it's to do with making them more accessible. So what is that approach that you've adopted to the way in which you present? Yeah, I read everything on my slides, which is something that people say, never do that. However, there are people who can't see your slides, right? If I have something on my slides and it's an image of something that's important, I describe it, which a lot of people don't do. They say that thing over there. And you know what? If you're in the very, very back, uh, you can't see it. So I'll give an example. I was just speaking at a conference a few uh, last week, actually. And uh, I do my best to describe important images on the screen. And someone came up to me afterward and said, thank you for describing the images because I have low vision and I couldn't see everything, but you described them. So I knew what was going on. And I've had people give me that commentary and, you know, yes, I've gotten the feedback, like don't read everything on your slides too bad. I'm going to read everything on my slides if, if, because it's important and not everybody can see it because the thing is, especially with when things have gone online, people will step away from their computer but they're still listening. And if somebody has stepped away and they can't see what you're talking about, they're not really, you know, clued in as to what's fully happening. They're not getting that full experience. So I just think it's best to describe things. And I ask questions of the audience, even when I record a talk, because what I found as an educator is that I can't teach anybody anything. All I can do is ask questions that hopefully will make you think. And so I like asking questions, even if I don't get a response of an answer. <laughs> I like asking questions too, which is, is funnily enough, I, I run a podcast <laughs> where I get yeah. to ask a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. You talked about the uh, moment at that conference just last week when the person came up to you and thanked you for putting in the effort, taking the time to actually describe what was on on the screen. When you first became interested in accessibility, I understand that you attended uh, a meetup in New York City and you met mm -hmm. two people of which you both of them you consider to still be friends and one mm -hmm. of them who's a blind person asked you a question that stuck with you ever since. What was that question? So the person, yeah, who asked me the question is named Nefertiti and yeah, she's a dear. Uh, I adore her. She's a great, she does all the uh, audio description, a lot of audio descriptions for Netflix now. But she, uh, she 
asked me what I did for a living. And I said, I'm a UX designer. She goes, well, what do they do? And I said, oh, they make things more usable. And, you know, I do this and I do that. And I work in e-commerce, blah, blah, blah. And she said, well, do people like you, designers, think about people like me, people who are blind? And I thought for a moment, you know, which seemed like eternity for me sitting there. And I told her, no, no. But whatever I do in the future, I will make sure to think about you. And I will make sure whoever is around me will also think about people like you as well. So that I, I had already had uh, interest in accessibility, but that got me more interested in accessibility and doing like deeper dives into understanding the W3C and, you know, creating guidelines nobody asked for <laughs> around <laughs> accessibility. So, yeah, I got, I got really into it. And then I started speaking about it. You've spoken a whole lot about it and you've obviously, as I mentioned in your introduction, you've also dedicated a lot of time and energy to various initiatives, which is which is ongoing and no doubt there will be more in the future. I was curious as someone who is who has described, you've described yourself in the past as someone without any obvious disabilities. How has that affected the way in which you and the work which you've done a lot of in this space has been received. You know, has this always lent itself to a warm reception? No, certainly not. I mean, some things work well, some things don't. Uh, some things come across well, some things don't. I was doing a presentation a few weeks back on extended reality and accessibility, and my slides had a lot of motion in them, and somebody commented. Like, I'm getting sick from your presentation because there's too much going on, right, in terms of the motion. And I said, oh, my goodness, you know, I work in this field. I do my best to, you know, not make to make sure I, I create things to be as accessible as I can. But I still will. It's a it's a learning process and it's a life learning process. I don't feel that I'm always going to get things right. I am open to critique and feedback and I don't take it personally because I cannot, uh, you know, I wrote a book where not everybody liked it. Right. And so it's, it's a matter of, I think being open and learning and learning about accessibility is an ongoing thing. Learning about disability is an ongoing thing. In the past two years, you know, almost three years now that we've been in this pandemic, which we are still in, we have seen folks with long COVID, which is now a new disability, right? Um, where people have uh, shorter attention spans, they're not able to focus, they have brain fog. All of these things need to be thought about when we're designing. So I would say some things are well received, some things are not some things I learn from and then correct and move forward. Well, let's talk about the book. So the book is Inclusive Design for a Digital World, Designing with Accessibility in Mind. Now, you mentioned there there was a range of feedback that you received after you put the book out there into the world. What has surprised you the most about that feedback that you've received, about putting all this time and energy into making something like this book? Well, in general, I've gotten pretty good feedback from the book um, and folks who have read it. I actually 
got a really cool, and I haven't posted this yet, but I need to, a person who uh, attend, attended school in Canada reached out to me because they had taken a motion graphics course. And in the motion graphics course, they had to do like a, well, like a book, like a book motion graphic, a, a motion graphic based on a book. And they decided to choose my book and they made this really cool, really cute motion graphic and they shared it with me. And uh, I said, oh my goodness, I loved it. Like I never ever in a million years would think that somebody would read my book and then make this like 30 (laughs) second, one minute, I don't know how long it is, motion graphic. And yeah, I've gotten, you know, people who said, I didn't really know anything about this. And I learned from your book. And to me, what is very exciting is that people are willing and open to learn about this. And it was really cool because I dedicated the book to, well, one of the inspirations for the book was my cousin, Tammy, who is deaf. And she's like, you did this for me. And I was like, you inspired me when I was young, you know, to, to learn more, um, to, to, to have a, different understanding of the world other than a perspective of my own. And when you were writing the book, what involvement from members of the disability community, people with disabilities, did you have in shaping it? So, yeah, my technical reviewer for the book, Sarah Allen, is deaf. And so that she was part of the whole process. But I also throughout the process had uh, different folks who work in accessibility and who are disabled review parts of the book. So even when I got the negative feedback that I got for the book, I said, you know, I I did go through a process when I was writing this book because nothing about us without us, right? I It wasn't uh, a, a point of me, um, you know, writing this and saying, well, I am writing this and for this. No, I, I wrote it with. I wrote it with. And so I got really good feedback and I changed some things in the book because of that feedback. Oh, okay. So it sounds like good, bad feedback as opposed to yeah. bad, bad feedback. Yeah. Um, now there may be some people listening to us today that aren't as familiar with the world of accessibility and inclusive design. So for people that are just picking this subject up, how is inclusive design and accessible design, how are they different yet related? So accessibility specifically refers to disability and ensuring things that are accessible for folks with disabilities. So when you're thinking about the web, for example, they have there's a thing called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines that exist uh, that is put forth uh, by the W3. And so with those, you have four areas that are perceivable, operable, understandable and robust. Meaning, so if I, whether I can see or not, I can still perceive something. Whether I have hands or no hands or whatever the case may be, I can still operate something. Regardless of cognitive abilities, I can understand something. And something needs to be robust, meaning I need to be able to understand it and I need to be able to operate it. So thinking about it, it truly means having options. So for example, if I am... Uh, listening to a podcast, or I want to listen to a podcast and I can't hear, then transcripts should be available for that podcast, right? Or if I don't have the time to listen, and I just want to read it, or I want to use my speech to text or whatever the case may be, 
I like to give the example of texting, which everybody on the planet does, it seems, and how texting was created in the 90s. SMS was created for the deaf community, right? But yet today in 2022, we all benefit from it. It's so true. I was preparing for something the other day and my son was being quite loud. Uh, and I may have actually mentioned this on the previous episode. So if you're hearing this twice, people, then forgive me. But I couldn't, I couldn't actually listen uh, to what was being said. And so I ended up turning on captions and I was able to, to read um, as my son was enjoying himself perhaps a little bit too much. So you're right. Everyone does benefit from these features. Right. I read something that you'd written and I've, I've seen this reference before. And that is that 98% of the web is currently non-compliant with uh, WCAG 2.0 level AA, which is the mid-level of compliance with the with the uh, guidelines, right? So this isn't the ultimate level. This is somewhere in the middle. And 2.0, I think, has been replaced now by 2.1, right? So it's probably right. um, <laughs> even even worse now. But that's a high percentage, right? That's nearly 99%. So if you're using a screen reader or any other form of assistive assistive technology, that can make your experience pretty frustrating. Uh, if at yeah. all uh, impossible, sometimes impossible to enjoy and participate in the digital world. So what are some of the more common usability or, sorry, accessibility sins that if we could just stop making the, those in our work, we would make a big or an outsized positive difference? Well, uh, webaim.org is a, a great organization out of Utah State University they have great resources around accessibility, and they also have, you can, you know, check your website to see how accessible it is, but always do a manual check. I will just say that. Um, but one of the things they do every annually is they do a, they call it the WebAIM Million, and they look at a million of the top websites, and they run these websites through their, their checker. And this checker is on par with the web content accessibility guidelines. And the number one issue for years has been color contrast still, you know, so this is still an issue regardless of the fact that color contrast checkers exist for everything from sketch to Figma, all these things you can put in a, you know, a plugin for whatever uh, browser you're using. So that is probably, it, it's funny, but not funny that that's still an issue. Um, because, you know, certain designers will say, well, this is, you know, I'm, you're putting constraints, or you're making me less creative. And it's not necessarily the case, in my opinion. Not that I am someone who believes in casting the blame net on any one particular group here. But I do wonder how much of that can be attributed to people outside of the digital space. And in particular, I'm talking about groups of designers such as those that operate in brand design. And I mm -hmm. wonder if you're if you're aware of, I mean, I, this isn't something that I thought about prior to our conversation, but I wonder if there are any initiatives underway that you're aware of where we are trying to educate those designers whose work is outside of digital but has a, an undeniable impact on the experiences that we're shaping for people with disabilities? No, but that would be a really good initiative for somebody to pick up. I think that thinking about 
accessibility. And uh, there's a, another great organization called DEQ, D-E-Q-U-E. And they have plug-in. They also have great resources and classes that you can take. They did a case study where they discovered 67% of accessibility issues were from design, right? So that's a pretty, I mean, it's over 50%. And so there is, I think, just in general, in general education, in general, like in, in the workplace, there isn't education around accessibility or what that means. And what does it mean for your work? And that is a very, you know, contextual thing that needs to be considered. You've spoken about an architect in the past called Ronald Mace. Ronald coined the term universal design, which is the concept of designing all products and the built environment to be aesthetic and usable to the greatest extent possible by everyone, regardless of their age, ability or status in life. Now, there are seven, understand, seven principles of universal design, and they include things like equitable use, perceptible information, and low physical effort. So what is it that you feel that UX designers, but perhaps as we've just been speaking about now, designers more broadly, can learn from these principles? I think, so universal design initially was created around buildings, right? So thinking about how someone is entering and exiting and getting around a building. And I think when we encounter a digital space, we also need to think about that, right? For example, somebody may enter a building and they have use of both legs. Someone may enter a building and they have use of a wheelchair, right? When someone visits our website, they may wear glasses or they may have forgotten their glasses, right? Is the, is the, the font, is the type of, is, are these things big enough for us to see when we maximize them? How do things look? These kind of things we have to think about as designers is the fact that there are a variety of different people who could be accessing the content we create. We don't know how they're going to access it. We don't know who they are, but what I have found in general is that folks with disabilities are usually the last folks that people think about when they're making something, when I think it should be quite the opposite. It should be the first. Let's talk about that notion of thinking about people with disabilities last. And you've said something else, and I'll quote you again now. You've said, I think we have an issue in society with ableism and that it is one of the root causes as to why things are not made accessible or accessibility isn't thought about. And you've also suggested, you went on to suggest that this is perhaps not necessarily something that is consciously happening. I mean, ableism is so built into our society. It's so built into capitalism. It is something to be unlearned. And culturally it is dependent right because different cultures experience ableism in different ways i live in the united states and there are certain words that should not be used right uh when when speaking about particular groups of people because it's highly offensive and you know when i i did a talk this talk i did last week i the the first thing that i brought up was ableism but before I, I, I brought up ableism, I asked people, 
has, has anybody said anything to you that made you feel bad about yourself or they've called you something and you didn't like it? You know, I could see the heads nodding. And I said, well, this oftentimes happens with ableism. I said, that feeling of feeling bad because somebody said something to you is something that we have control over when we're creating experiences, right? We have that opportunity to not make somebody feel bad, potentially. The work that is done in design and the interactions as, that we have as designers with other parts of our organizations, you know, parts like product and engineering, there's a degree of complexity in those. And particularly when it comes to accessibility, there is a crossover between design and engineering and the way in which those experiences are either accessible or inaccessible to people. And what I'm wondering about here is whether or not this complexity is sometimes used as a, a cover or an excuse to not give accessibility and inclusive design the consideration that it deserves. Yeah, I, I think this a lot of times comes down to an education issue of people not knowing a lot about accessibility and therefore if they don't know how to do it, you know, people feel very uncomfortable saying, I don't know. So instead, <laughs> they say, we're not going to do it, right? Mm. Instead of maybe learning or finding out more about the situation or saying it's going to take too long to do it. So we're just not going to do it. And I don't necessarily think that's the answer. I think that there is an opportunity to build things slowly and add things in as you go, if you're working and you're doing two week sprints or whatever it is, you can add a little bit of accessibility to each and every sprint. You do not have to put everything in all at once. I've given the analogy of like, if somebody is building a brick building, they don't just get the, a bunch of bricks and then throw them. Right. That's not how you make a building. You will, you will put a brick You'll put the mortar, you'll put more brick, you know, you build it. And I think that is a possibility when it comes to accessibility and the complexity of working cross-functionally. I don't think it needs to be something that is, let's do it all at once. It doesn't work mm. like that. Nothing does. So, yeah. I think it would have been over a year ago now, I had a conversation with Sherry Byrne Haber on the podcast and we explored the notion of diversity, equity, and inclusion not extending to include accessibility and in people with disabilities and that you wouldn't have an organisation that would say, well, we're just not going to do DE&I. Um, it's too, too hard. It's going to take too long and we don't really know how to do it. Yet for some reason it seems that it's uh, acceptable enough, even though there is a bit of a stick in the US in terms of the regulations that govern this space, to opt out. What's that about? I, uh, to be honest, again, it goes back to our society. Our society in general does not think about folks with disabilities until it's too late, right? Every single person will encounter disability at one point or another in their lives. By the way, I, I will tell your audience, everybody should get Sherry's book, <laughs> 
give a damn about accessibility because and and follow her writing is brilliant and she's she's just such a great voice um in the accessibility field i think that it goes back to when we think about i think it's important for us to think about the root causes of how we got to where we are and why are things an afterthought and where is our humanity and this can be a difficult thing to do when you're working in a, a corporate environment and you're just trying to get the work out the door. But again, Rome was not built in a day, nor does the, the accessibility, making things more accessible, inclusive, does not have to happen in a day. It could happen incrementally and it could build into something great. Mm. You you talked about in the past this notion of design culture, a culture of accessibility within the enterprise as being part of that overall design culture. And you've said, and I'll quote you again, are you incorporating inclusion and accessibility into your organisational culture to which you believe that there's five key elements of this? And I'll just go through those quickly. The first is standards. The second is education and training for specific roles. The third is accountability. The fourth is about inclusive hiring and research. And the fifth, the fifth and final one is, it's a quote actually, it's it's everyone's job. It can't be everyone's job, can it? Yes, I think it can. Because it's, you know, if we're talking about design, everyone does some design in one way way or another. Maybe people are not doing it in a formal way, but everything is by design. Everything. And so I do think that design is a way of thinking. And so incorporating accessibility into that way of thinking is possible. And therefore, yes, it is everyone's job to think about it. And you've got three questions that designers and perhaps more broadly speaking now, people in organizations that care about making their experiences more accessible can ask. And I wondered if we could just touch on each of those briefly. The first of which is, do you include people with disabilities in your design process? Tell me about that one. So one of the things to consider, and and this has come from my work experience, is are you incorporating folks with disabilities in the process? Anywhere along the the, the way, uh, from, uh, hopefully from the beginning, have you talked to people with disabilities about what you're working on? Or are you just working on it? Are you incorporating them? Maybe a lot of folks get involved in the usability testing piece. Um, as somebody who I'm an educator, and uh, one of the classes that I co-teach is uh, called Looking Forward, and it's all about assistive tech that blind and low vision folks use. And I co-teach it with someone who is blind. And that for me has been such an insightful experience in part because I wouldn't get that knowledge if I were just learning it on my own, right? There's nothing that beats talking to someone and engaging with someone with lived experience. You can't beat second, it, like honestly. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's uh, it's uh, it's illuminating and it's a critical part of of design or at least it should be like you say though it can it can be overlooked and uh and as a result we miss out on on a great deal of things your second question that you put to people with an enterprise is are your design solutions intended to be used by your future self 
you tell me about that because you touched on that briefly just before, I think, by suggesting that every one of us will experience disability at some stage of our lives. Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that I've done in the past is a, a workshop, uh, Designing for Your Future Self, where I have people think about themselves in the future, not some imaginary person. This is you. Do you wear glasses now? Do you work out? How are those knees? Have you been sitting? How's your back, right? All these things that we need to think about uh, now, because if we start designing stuff when we're older, it's too late. We're too late. We need to start thinking about it now, right? So one of the reasons I started looking at inclusion and accessibility in the extended reality space is because I like VR. And I said, uh, I want to use this when I get older, right? <laughs> Can I? What does accessibility look like in this space? And then I started doing some research and realizing that it's not as accessible as it could be. There are people, there are organizations, there are academics who are working on things, which is great. But why aren't we doing this on a grander scale if these, you know, a lot of these companies are talking about us being in the metaverse in the future? Well, I've got a thought thought about this yeah. and it's sparked yeah. by something that you said, actually. You gave an example of how using camel case, which is, uh, for people not familiar, it's where you capitalize the first letter of every word in the context of hashtags. And I was thinking about this because every episode I put out for the show, I also uh, will tweet about it and I will put some hashtags that are relevant to the content in there. And Twitter forces the default to being all lowercase for hashtags. So my question is, if Twitter can't even embrace the uh, accessibility principles of camel case in the context of hashtags, what hope do we have that something as bleeding edge as cross-reality experiences will be accessible at all, and at least in the short term? Without hope, what do we have? Hmm. <laughs> That's what I say. Again, the the small things can turn into big things. I think one of the things that we, you know, one, you should tweet that at Twitter and tell them, you know, this shouldn't default is this. Uh, and and tweet tweet at the, the Twitter accessibility team. <laughs> but two, I would say one of the things we saw come out of Twitter actually in the in the last, you know, year is the option for alternative text. And for that to be readily available for everyone, I got to, you know, beta test it early, which was really cool. And I love seeing it. I hate seeing when people don't add it. It's super frustrating to me, especially like a celebrity or a brand. It's so simple to do it. Just add it so that more folks can have access to it. But also the thing with all of this stuff is like people will take advantage of it as well. Um, and people are putting different things in the alt text that they shouldn't because that's always going to happen. That's always part of the risks associated with this technology, the good and the bad. I think you played a video in one of your talks where people, it was a tweet actually of somebody else's where they were commenting that the use of different stylized fonts in people's Twitter handles or in their tweets actually creates havoc 
from oh, the perspective yeah. of someone trying to use a screen reader because the screen reader has to articulate the ASCII, the, the ASCII name, the full ASCII name of the type or at least that's what it sounded like to me as it's going through. And that's a similar issue but different to what I was talking there about camel case, which I should have clarified, which is if you don't capitalise the first letter of every word in your hashtag, the screen reader is unable to determine between those different words because it's looking for, I imagine, spaces between words or uh, changes in case in order to be able to do that. Right. Yeah, it, it, it will read it as one word if you don't have it camel case. And sometimes those hashtags are don't make sense <laughs> otherwise, you yeah. know, without yeah. without the camel case. And your last question for enterprise people in enterprise was, does your product promote an inclusive language? Now, this is the one that I was least clear on or I felt like there was rich territory to go into here with you. You know, I could make a whole bunch of assumptions about what you meant, but hey, seeing that you're here, I may as well <laughs> ask you what it was that you meant, and you can you can enlighten all of us as to what you were getting at there. Yeah, so thinking about inclusive language is considering who your audience is and the context with which you are putting that information out there. I think when you are doing something that's on a global scale, are you using language that is simple enough? for everybody to understand. And when it gets translated, does it make sense? You know, I think that when we, when we create things, we tend to think of things in the lens of just us or our team seeing it. But if this is going to be seen by a broader audience, how are they taking that in? Are you using language that makes people feel included? Or are you using language that makes people feel like uh, that doesn't, that doesn't affect me that I don't, I don't understand that. And the only way that you can really understand that is if you know the community that you're serving, right. And getting to understand your user at the end of the day. So when you think about the context of a global brand delivering a, a global experience, you know, that may touch many dozens of different cultures and communities across the world. Are there any bounds to the lengths to which organizations, designers, the people involved in creating these experiences should go to? You know, is there such a, a concept here as it's good enough or is that something that's abhorrent and should never be really entertained in this context? Well, I think if you can have local people, you know, doing that work, it's always helpful. If you can't, obviously, you have to do the best you can. But getting as much feedback from the community, again, that you're serving as possible or and or having them be a part of it, right? I'm a big fan of participatory design or co-design where people are involved in the process. So that can take a little bit of effort, but the rewards of having some, putting something out there that has been seen by the community before you put it out is an, an awesome thing to be able to do. Yeah, 100%. You know, the success or failure of these initiatives around accessibility, around inclusive design, sometimes feel like they're outside, and maybe they often are, outside of the immediate control of the people who believe in them. And I know you've talked about in the past that 
you've had some successes and some failures in embodying, helping organizations to embody a culture that is open and receptive to this type of uh, thinking and this way of helping other people to experience the world. What are some of the things that have separated your successes in the space and failures from one another, particularly when it relates to engaging with senior leadership on these issues? Um, well, the success is when the support comes from the top. I think when when you have the support to create uh, more accessible experiences, it's an awesome thing. When you don't have that support and you feel you have people tell you it's going to take too long, we're going to do something like get an overlay, which don't ever get overlays. We're going to do uh, that instead because we need to get, you know, everything needs to be done quickly, right, in, in business. And so when people see that it's going to take too long, then this is where I've, I feel like I've, I've not, I've failed and learned is there are some people's minds you won't change. So for me, what I ended up doing was I would sneak in accessibility where I could. <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> I like it a bit of without sort of saying and sometimes you, here. well, yeah, because sometimes you want to incorporate stuff and just don't call it accessibility, and you just you we're we're adding this feature or we're doing this thing, we're updating this feature, and it's going to do this now, and you don't, you know, because again, let's be, you know, I work in the education space, I get I get the pleasure of teaching students and. Uh, a lot of times it's just like these ideal scenarios. Right. The reality mm -hmm. of when somebody goes into a job and they're trying to implement stuff and they can't, I always, you know, I, I, I had a couple of students who, who reached out to me in tears because they really wanted to incorporate accessibility and they were getting major pushback and it hurt my heart. It hurt mm -hmm. my heart. And one of the things that I've incorporated into my classes and what I tell people is you have to take care of yourself first. UX and self-care is a, is a thing, you know, uh, I got introduced to, to UX and self-care by uh, Vivienne uh, Castillo and who is an awesome person. And I think that if you're getting such a, uh, massive pushback to the efforts that you're trying to do and people don't want to do it you have to take care of yourself first and maybe you start looking for another job somewhere else if that's the case but the thing is you can't keep trying in 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 that frustrated space because it's not healthy for you i, I just i just i stress that to my students i have told them about situations in my past where i've had to deal with stuff. And, you know, it's a lesson learned. I didn't take care of myself, right? This is, this is what I've learned. But now I can tell others, you know, make sure that you're taking care of yourself first in this process, that this is a job, you are not your job. And yes, you want to do the best. Yes, you want to make things more accessible, you want to make things more inclusive but it shouldn't be at the cost of your health and your well-being at the end of the day. I definitely don't want to underemphasize or devalue the importance of self-care. I also don't want to let practitioners, each of us, off the hook easily here either 
Now, you've challenged people, practitioners in particular, to be critical in their thinking and examine and examine the assumptions that they hold, encouraging them to answer a couple of questions. And those questions are, and I'll quote you again here, what are your assumptions about what the people and the context that you are researching? So what do you hold to be true that may or may not be? And the second is, have you double-checked the truth about your assumptions? So how do you shake out those assumptions? How, how do you make clear or bring to bring into the light what those assumptions are? Well, one, that came from the Designer's Critical Alphabet by uh, Dr. Leslie Ann Knoll, which I like to use often. And uh, I think every design team should have them. There are a little set of cards you can order on Etsy. And one is we, we, ha- we have an idea of a product. We have an idea of who's going to use it. We have an idea of what we want the outcomes to be, what KPIs are possible. We have these ideas, right? Those are our assumptions because we don't know anything until we actually talk to people. Now, we may have had something similar in the past with data that backs it up, but we don't actually know. Well, we, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And so that's where our assumptions come in. We, when we have an idea of the product, what it's going to be, what it's going to do, those are our assumptions. How are we double checking that what we think is right? And have we thought about how inclusive or accessible this thing is as part of that process? More than likely not, because more than likely the case is we just want to make this thing or so-and-so needs this thing and it needs to be done in two weeks. You spoke about your teaching style earlier, much earlier on in our conversation, and just then you spoke about the uh, not knowing anything until we talk to people as sounds like part of your underlying design philosophy. And I understand in your classes which is related to this, you've been making an effort to make accessibility real for your students. And in part, this has been achieved by inviting people with disabilities into the classroom for conversation with these students that you're teaching. So how has this very tangible way of making disability and the experience of people with disabilities real for your students, how has that influenced the way in which you've observed them grasp the importance of this work? Yeah. Well, I said earlier, there's nothing like talking to people with lived experience. And for my students, that I think it's been incredibly like a good learning experience for them. A lot of what you know, I've seen is that there's a lot of assumptions about folks with disabilities because people in general don't interact with people with disabilities. And this is across the board. And so there, again, there's a lot of assumptions made, but when you actually start to talk to people and then you get to understand, especially because my students work with disability and technology and kind of bridging that gap, is there's a lot of assumptions made about what, you know, people use and how they use it and what people will find valuable that are completely wrong. So I think, again, and and one of the things that we have emphasized in my courses is designing with and not designing for. 
the disability community. So making sure that you're always talking to someone sometimes, you know, with the pandemic, it was difficult, right, for, for folks to meet with people. And, and so I was like, go on social media and find folks with the, you know, a lot of people will actually engage, you know, reach out, you never know who will reach back. And, you know, my students are like, oh, so-and-so message me back. And I said, that's great. You know? So I think, again, there's nothing like engaging with folks with real life, um, real lived experiences. Nothing beats that. And something else that you've been doing in the classroom to help make the experience of the digital world more clear to people without disabilities has been to relate it to them in terms of the senses. I'll quote you again now. You said, if we think of things in terms of senses instead of accessibility, then it's a little easier to comprehend and to understand. So how can conceptualizing or communicating accessibility in terms of senses, how does that make the practical realities of accessibility easier for people to grasp? Yeah, I, I, I think when in the context of whenever I said that, I don't remember when I said that, but thinking about, you know, people think of our five senses, right? So if, if you can't, I mean, you gave a great example earlier of, of turning on captions. I think that if we think about things from a sense perspective, it gives us a different way of looking, looking at things. So if, if I am, for example, wanting to, you know, this is something I've done in the past where I'm like, I want to watch this movie, but I need to clean my house. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn on the audio descriptions so that I can still catch what's happening and not necessarily have to see it while I'm, you know, cleaning up or doing whatever I'm doing. So I think thinking about things from a, a perspective of if this sense is taken away, if the sense of hearing is not available, then what are my options to access this thing or experience this thing? If I'm not able to uh, speak or, uh, you know, what are my options then, right? You know, if I, I can't hear or whatever it is, I, I think that it's just a different lens and perspective of looking at things and one that I have encouraged in the past. So while we're on this theme of design education, something that you have shared with the community of designers has been some frustration that accessibility is little more than a footnote in most of our design educations, or at least in the design education that you've been exposed to. I understand you recently received a grant from a, an organization called Teach Access to help you to change that. What has that grant enabled you to do? Oh, so it wasn't recent, but I did get a grant a few years. I think it was a couple of years ago. So Teach Access is a great organization. I recently just joined the board of, and they are working with educators to get them to incorporate accessibility into their curriculum. And therefore, they're able to educate students and get more students involved in putting accessibility out there in the corporate space, right? So it's not just you learn it in the class and, oh, I learned, and then you, you never apply it. It's learning it, applying it, 
And for me, I was able to, because I was working on a course with uh, virtual reality, I was able to uh, purchase some VR headsets with that. And then some other, I like, I'm a, I'm a fan of physical cards. And so getting um, like the, the alphabet, there's an alpha, a set of cards, which is an alphabet of different types of disabilities, like to apply different lenses for students to think about. And so I was able to use the funds for that. And I also was able to, you know, provide my curriculum and share that with others as part of the the Teach Access and learn from others as well as how they're incorporating it in. This it sounds, sounds very tangible, right? Very practical things that you invested in as a result of that grant. And I, I also understand that you're a, a big believer in providing your students with, well, quite frankly, some fairly amazing opportunities. There's one of those that I wanted to discuss with you today, which I believe is called Eclipse Soundscapes. And yeah, that's a that's project correct. that... Yeah, you're working in conjunction with a, an organization called Arisa Lab and the National Federation of the Blind. And it's for quite a special organization that I think has got fairly global renown. Who's yeah. it for and what's what's it about? Yeah, so I'll just tell this story. So a, a few, it, this was right before the pandemic hit in February of 2020. I volunteered as part of an event um, to... Uh, Blind folks were learning physical computing, so they were learning how to solder. And so I was just there to like hand things because I'm not a physical computing person whatsoever. And at this event, another volunteer uh, named Trey Winter, he and I started talking and he is an astrophysicist and he um, was telling me about his work. And I said, oh, well, I teach user experience design and my students always have a real life client that I think the semester previous, Microsoft was my client, you know, for my students. So it's been really cool. And so he said, he asked me, how would, how would your students feel about having NASA as a client? Mm. And on the inside, I am screaming, like, that would be amazing. <laughs> and I said, oh, that would be cool. You know, I tried to keep it cool. So, uh, Trey is part of Arisa Labs and Arisa Labs applied for a a NASA grant and received it. And uh, my students and I are part of that grant. So the uh, the grant is to make Eclipse accessible for the blind and low vision communities. In order to do that, people will record sounds on these audio moth recorders during the eclipse of 2023 and 2024. They will upload the, the sounds to a website and be able to experience the sounds of the eclipse. So if you're blind or low vision, you cannot see an eclipse, but you could hear the sounds that happen during it. And so my students have been working on the UX UI for the website and some of the other things and thinking about how to promote uh, a citizen science. So one of the things was creating an accessible uh, Instagram filter, which Instagram is not that accessible stories and reels are actually not screen reader friendly. Um, however, I do have a group of 20 students this semester who are working on uh, part of my re my research team as uh, they're working on defining accessibility in the extended reality space. So yeah, that is, uh, yeah, my students client is NASA. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, indirectly, cool. directly. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I want to come back to what you said there around the audio recordings of an eclipse. How are the sounds during an eclipse any different to the sounds that you might hear on either side of it? Yeah, so one of the example that the folks at Arisa Labs give is um, the sound of crickets. So before an eclipse, you won't hear crickets. During an eclipse, you'll hear crickets because the crickets think it's night. And then after the eclipse, you don't hear them. So there's all these different sounds that happen in nature. And so one of the things that 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 those sounds have data associated with them, right? And so folks can compare the sounds that will be coming out next year to the sounds that happened five years ago and see if there's a difference between those, right? There's there's always story in, in data. What a marvelous initiative. How can people that are listening today, if at all, how can they get involved in this and contribute, maybe be one of the people that can record those sounds? Yeah, so I think it's it's only for U.S. folks at the moment, as far as I know, but um, people can email me if they have interest and I can direct them. Wonderful. I want to come to XR now. You, you sort of touched on that briefly there at the end of the story about the NASA project. Now, this is fascinating for me, this intersection between accessibility and XR, but also just just XR in general, which for people listening, I understand to be anything that involves uh, VR and AR, but you might be able to do this greater justice than I can. What is XR and how did you get involved in this particular space of design? So XR is uh, extended reality. And in general, it's a it's a debatable term. <laughs> some people like mm-hmm. it, some people don't. I mean, this is this is this is the world we live in. So XR in general covers augmented reality and virtual reality. How I got into it, when I had my consulting business, I worked out of a WeWork and I sat next to an augmented reality company and they said, Oh, what do you do? I said, I do UX. They said, We need some UX help and I ended up doing a little bit of work with them around some usability testing, and that got me interested uh, in in that field. And then I ended up incorporating it into my uh, UX courses. So I incorporated a, a little bit of augmented reality, but this is when whew, they would really like using AR uh, on the phones would just kill the battery immediately. Um, this is what I recall from that time. And then I ended up uh, working on a course for uh, NYU, I co-creating a course, a UX for AR and VR course. And I actually worked on two, two courses for NYU. And then, yeah, I started researching it and learning more. And a few years ago, I got involved with XR Access, which is an organization out of Cornell Tech. And I started um, working closely with them. And then, yeah, I, I I said, I want to use VR when I get old. And so that's what kicked off my interest and in research into inclusion and accessibility in the extended reality space. And that what what I did in the beginning was look at uh, a majority of uh, tools and used in the XR space and ended up creating a, a huge spreadsheet and then turning that spreadsheet, because I am a designer, and I worked with my grad research assistant, and we made it into a subway map. So if you are interested in 
learning AR, what are the tools? And Or if you're interested in drawing, what are the tools? So we ended up putting that out on Medium um, and LinkedIn. That's a really useful resource, and I'll link to that in the show notes as well. I was curious about your observations of the challenge that lies ahead of designers in the XR space. In particular, are there any notable differences in the nature of the scale of that challenge in terms of making XR accessible when you contrast that against the you know, the regular, the non-XR, the, the real reality digital world that we've had prior? Yeah, I think there's a lot of, one, there's a lot of technical constraints, right, within the systems that you build these uh, experiences to uh, thinking about, you know, for, for designers who are moving from a 2D space to a 3D space, thinking about space itself and how to design for space. Um, I always say that people who are interior designers, urban planners, um, uh, architects are so primed to get into the VR and AR space because they understand space. Not a digital space, but real space. And that's what you have to think about um, in order to really build things that will be, you know, that will work well. I think that we, we're seeing, you know, today I, I taught a class, I'm teaching a class called Human Spatial Computing, which is based off a book I'm co-authoring with Doug Northcook uh, that'll be coming out in 2023. And I was talking to the students about, you know, about uh, one, ethics and privacy today, but that's a whole other issue <laughs> in this space. But but talking about the fact, we were talking about the different tools, the different platforms that exist um, in the XR space, which are vast. I think designers really should get to understand the space itself, what tools are being used in the space, what's necessary. And with, you know, when it comes to design, the classic answer is it depends. Um, And so it often depends on what you're doing. However, accessibility is, again, not oftentimes thought about in this space at all, because, you know, why, you know, people say, well, why would a blind person use a VR headset? Well, why wouldn't they use a VR headset, right? And so some, you know, there are different folks working on really cool uh, hand hand tracking type of things in the space. There are people working on audio things in the space. So there there are folks working on accessible things in this space, which is cool. Regina, just mindful of time and yeah. wanting to bring the show down to a close so you can get off to your preseason NBA game. Oh, thank you. There, w- <laughs> there wouldn't be many people in UX who aren't aware of the importance of accessibility. Maybe that's a big assumption on, on my behalf. And maybe that awareness extends into people in the product community as well. Yet we still have a, a regular internet, you know, a regular web, not to mention even an XR experience of the world that's fairly, if not largely, inaccessible. If there was just one thing that people listening to our conversation could do after they put down this podcast, what should that be? Oh, one thing that people should do. I think that folks can really be awake to the world. I think that is one of the bigger things. Be awake to the world. And I, when I say be awake to the world, it's truly looking at the world, not just through your lens, but how other people may see it, 
right? Um, or experience it. And I think that many times we're just on this automatic, we just go about our days, we don't really look up. Um, we just, you know, heads down and working. And I think that in order for us to really design a more inclusive and accessible world, one, we have to look at ourselves um, because I think self-awareness, self-reflection is important. And then we need to also take a look at the world. That's what I would say. Take the red pill, people. <laughs> Regine, it's been great speaking with you. I've really enjoyed today's conversation. Plenty of things in here for me and I'm sure everyone else that's been listening to have a really good critical and hard think about. Thank you for sharing your stories and your insights with me today. Thank you so much. It was a great, great talking to you. You're welcome. Regine, if people want to find out more about you, about your work in UX and accessibility, about your upcoming book, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, I would say I'm pretty active on Twitter. So you can find me at R-E-G underscore I-N-E-E. Perfect. Thanks, Regine. And to everyone else who's been listening, it's been great having you here as well, listening or watching everything or reading. Everything we've been we've been covering today will be in the show notes. So don't forget to check those out, including where you can find Regine and the other things that we've spoken about, including the subway map for XR. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX, design and product management, don't forget to leave a review on the podcast if you're listening on a platform where that's possible. Subscribe so it turns up every week in your in your list of things to listen to and tell someone else about the show, just one other person if you feel that they would get value from these conversations about design at depth. If you want to reach out to me, you can find my my a link to my profile at the bottom of the show notes on LinkedIn. You find me that way, or you can head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey.